0: time that I was writing the book, I was thinking a lot and I've sort of always been really interested and thought a lot about this idea of, I think especially for women, this intuition, you know, this knowing that you have and the idea that your life is sort of always speaking to you. And there's always this sort of you know whisper that we can hear about decisions we've made, the place in life we're at. And it can be very unnerving to hear those whispers in our lives, whether it be about our children or relationships or friendships. And so I was writing about that. And actually I went away for a weekend to work on the book to try to escape home during the pandemic to try to find some focus for a few days. And I had gone on a walk while I was doing that and I had put on an Oprah podcast and it happened to be about this very topic. It felt like a bit of a gift (laughs) from the universe. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books
1: between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to this week's episode of the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. This week, we are featuring a new book by an author whose first book, The Push, took the publishing world by storm, skyrocketing to bestseller status and staying there. It's a title that readers still talk widely about, and I tell everybody they have to read it. Fans have been lining up for a follow-up, and it's now out in the world. The Whisper's published on June 8th, and we are so excited to talk with Ashley Audrain about it.
2: Ashley previously worked as the publicity director of Penguin Books Canada. Prior to Penguin, she worked in public relations. She lives in Toronto, where she and her partner are raising their two young children. The Whispers is her second novel, and Publishers Weekly gave her book a starred review, saying, Aldrain takes a deep dive into the secret lives of women in the standout work of literary suspense. This novel soars via Aldrain's clever revelations of the ways her protagonists' lives are linked in ways they never ex- suspected. Both artful and pulse pounding, this isn't easily shaken. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so Yay. much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for that intro.
1: It's, it's such a thrill for us because these are books that I just love to read. I'm a little apprehensive because I know they're going to be like making my heart race. But then when I get into them, it's like <laughs> turning the pages as, as sparks fly off my fingertips. <laughs> But we're so excited to talk about the book. And for anybody who may not have read it yet or read about it, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the book is about? But then the question we really love to ask is underneath that, what the book is really about?
0: Mm, Yeah. So, The Whispers is about four families who live on Harlow Street. And they don't quite realize the ways in which their lives are intertwined until one night there is a tragedy that happens on the street involving one of the families, and the fallout sort of happens from there. And so the story is told through the perspectives of four different women, four mothers, and these are three mothers and one woman who are neighbors. And so we have Blair, who is very much this perfect mother figure. She's very committed to her role as mother and wife, but she's very much struggling with sort of this sense of longing in her life that she just can't quite place. She's in a very unhappy place. And um, she suspects it has something to do with her marriage. And then we have Whitney, who is her best friend who lives across the street. And Whitney is sort of the opposite of Blair in many ways. She's a very sort of high functioning, career focused woman who is sort of the envy of many people, but also sort of the target of a lot of kind of sort of criticism and gossip because of kind of the way that she conducts her life and her, her real focus on career over her kids. And we have Rebecca, who is an ER doctor, who is involved in helping the the child who's involved in a tragedy. And Rebecca is struggling to have a family of her own. So she feels sort of on the outside of these other two women. And then finally, we have Mara, who is an 82-year-old Portuguese immigrant who is living next door as well. And Mara is sort of this quiet voyeur of the neighborhood who, as it turns out, knows a lot more about these women than they would ever suspect she does. (laughs) that is fantastic well ashley you know
2: may we all be so lucky to have this problem but following this huge success of a book like the push had to have felt a little bit daunting you totally did it as ron said thank you you absolutely did it but talk to us about you know, the task of kind of following up this massive debut success and where did the original thought and story for the whispers come from? Mm,
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, it was, I mean, yes, I I did feel a lot of pressure and it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't easy to get, to get this book written. I would say for a couple of reasons. I mean, I will say it. I think I started, in a good place in a sense that um when i signed the the book deals for the for the push and the whispers which was that was a two book deal um at the beginning i had like a pretty long period of time i think it was almost 18 months until the push came out um and so for much of that time of course i was working on um edits of the push and working on revisions with my editors um but I also had time to get the first draft of the whispers done so uh, so that was good to sort of get get a get something started that, yeah. which is a like, good place for us to be I think yeah. it is it is I think for for a first draft I, I think it really is and so I was lucky to have things underway um that said I think when I was doing the heavy lifting on the book which as we know happens in revisions after you get that first sort of editorial letter <laughs> from your editors and have to kind of go back and start reworking the book, um, that was all during the pandemic. And I did find that incredibly hard because I had just launched the push and that was doing so well, thankfully, but it also was such a busy time. Um, and then, you know, having I have two little kids who were, you know, home from school because schools were shut down and life was shut down. And I was really just trying to work on it through those lockdown pandemic periods, which, which was tough. Um, but yeah, I think there was it, 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 you know, I, I, could feel that once I got out of that, um, you know, lockdown haze that we were all in and could sort of get a bit of time and space back. Um, I think I could, I could find some good focus with it again. Um, but the idea, you know, so, so I did have the idea, very broadly, um, like quite a while ago, you know, at the time of, of selling the two books. Um, but I, I didn't, but it it really became something else. It became such a different book over the course of time as, as you know, as many books do as, as we work on these, that tends to happen. Um, but I, I, at the time was living on a street here in Toronto that was in little Portugal and it very, it is sort of the inspiration behind Harlow Street. It is this very gentrified part of the city. Um, and we had neighbors um, who were an older couple. They were in their 80s. They were Portuguese immigrants. And we lived next to them you know, for eight years. And I was, I I felt like a real connection and affinity to this family and to especially the the 80 year old woman of that family. Um, Although we never actually spoke because they didn't speak English at all. But over the course of those eight years, you know, I sort of developed this kind of relationship with her in passing, you know, the waving from the street and sort of you know, they very much maintained this beautiful porch culture, you know, in that neighborhood where they would both sort of sit on their lawn chairs on the porch and really watch the world go by, but also watch us grow, you know, watch us have two kids and watch our lives change. And we were the noisy, obnoxious family next door, you know, renovating and letting our kids (laughs) run wild. Um, But I, and I was always very aware of that and sort of, um, yeah, it was, and I, I, I wondered a lot about her life, although I know I don't really know anything about it. Um, yeah. And so that, that was sort of part of the inspiration behind this idea of this, you know, the dynamic on the street of these kind of new families coming in and dealing with these modern problems of marriage and motherhood. And then this one kind of quiet, older voyeur who has her own fascinating history as a mother and wife, but nobody would ever know it, you know? And so, that, yeah, I just, that, that's sort of where that dynamic came from. And I will say that I also in that house had a my son's bedroom he was too young to even crawl out of the crib at this point he was small but um he had a bedroom at the it was at the front of the house not the back of the house but it had this long big window that opened and there was when we moved into the house there was never a lock on it and I only and I and every time Uh. I saw that window I thought oh my god what if it what if what if one day he you know Falls out the window, or opens the window, where it just—it felt—it was like this perilous thing that was in the house that I always thought about, and so that worked its way into the plot too. I will say,
1: it certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> um So we, we wanted to ask too that the title is "The Whispers," and um, mm. you kind of explain a little bit, but tell everybody how that um, is significant.
0: Yeah. So I, at the time that I was writing the book, I was thinking a lot and I have sort of always been really interested and thought a lot about this idea of, I think, especially for women, this intuition, you know, this knowing that you have and the idea that your life is sort of always speaking to you. And there's always this sort of, you know, whisper that we can hear about decisions we've made, the place in life we're at. And it can be very unnerving to hear those whispers in our lives, whether it be about our children or relationships or friendships. And so I was writing about that. And actually, I went away for a weekend to work on the book to try to escape home during the pandemic to try to find some focus for a few days. And I had gone on a walk while I was doing that. And I had put on an Oprah podcast and it happened to be about this very topic. It felt like a bit of a gift (laughs) from the universe, but, um, and Oprah was interviewing her best friend, Gail King. And they were having a conversation about how, you know, Gail was in this marriage and then um, she came home one day and she found her husband having an affair with a woman that they knew. Um, And how, of course, how devastating that was. And Gail had sort of said, no, I had no idea this was happening. And Oprah sort of stops her and says, are you sure? Are you sure you had no idea this was happening? Or did you know? And then they sort of get into this conversation about this intuitive knowing and the whispers in your life. And it just, it was so bang on to like exactly what I was writing about. Um, And I really just ran with that, with that idea of the whispers. And so every character, all, all four characters, and we hear from the perspectives of four women, they all have this experience in their life. You know, they're, they're all feeling a whisper of some sort about some aspect of their, of their life. And some of them are listening and some of them desperately don't want to hear. And they're all sort of, you know, have have their own relationship with that. Um, So that's sort of the, sort of the meaning behind the title or behind that main theme in the book.
1: That's awesome. But let's talk about the town itself. You almost built a world. So you found this area that you just described from your own experience that's kind of regentrified, but each house is a little bit different, just like the characters that mm. live there. So how did you match them up?
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed writing about this. And um, I really liked the idea of a street, which was, which was very much, you know, I'm sure there's streets like this in every city, but there, it, it very much applies to Toronto where I live. Um, but there is that eclectic sense, you know, all on one street of the way the houses have gone. And it's this idea that, you know, the, on one street, you could walk down one street and see, you know, the houses where the original immigrant families are still living and they haven't touched a thing. And then these sort of monstrous, you know, modern houses kind of built next door, sometimes on a double lot, you know, like Whitney's houses. Um, and in it, it, and it invites this real mix of culture and socioeconomic class and, I thought that's such an interesting dynamic within a street because you often become friends with your neighbors. You know, you often end up socializing with people on your street. Um, and so we have women in this book who come from very different backgrounds and are at very different, you know, financially at very different stages, um, but they all have this connection, you know, through their proximity and and for Whitney and Blair through their kids. Um, so I, I did have a lot of fun writing Whitney's home, like imagining her house and this sort of very audacious kind of space and, Um, It being all white everywhere with this black marble. And I I really love, I love, you know, home interior and decor and architecture. And so I I just had a lot of fun sort of envisioning what her home would be like versus her friend Blair who lives across the street, who lives in a very modest home that needs all of these repairs. And she's sort of doing her best to make it feel um, good enough, you know, for her and her family. Um, So yeah, I, I have very clear very clear images in my head of, of what each of these houses look like.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It very much played into Rebecca and Ben's story as well. So Rebecca is the doctor who's struggling to carry a pregnancy to full term. You know, she's struggling. They're very much struggling to have a baby, and there all there is this sense of um, I think we see this a lot in these sort of you know gentrifying neighborhoods where these young couples with all these dreams ahead of what their family will look like, you know, move in, buy a home that is suited for a family, you know, Rebecca, and then move into this house that has a bedroom, you know, has enough bedrooms for kids and there's little hooks near the door for where all the kids, you know, coats will hang. And, um, and there, and she talks about how the fabric on the banquette in the kitchen is wipeable, you know, meant for messy fingers. And so they've moved into this first home that is just perfectly situated for this family that they believe they can have um, until they start to try, you know, and then, then they are living in this home meant for the family that they just can't have. Um, and that, that is hard. That is a real reality for people. And that is hard. Um, so, so the, yeah, the, the you're, you're right. The, the house for each of these characters becomes quite important in terms of where they're living.
2: Yeah. Well, it is so fascinating the way that these houses, you know, re- do reflect these women in their lives. And I love, you know, how thoughtful you, know, you are about that. And so, you know, that brings me to, you have these four very different women, Whitney, Blair, Rebecca, and Mara, as you mentioned, how, how did they come to you? And then how did you begin to kind of populate these families? Were they, did you have people in mind? I mean, I know you, you mentioned, um, kind of the inspiration for your Mara character a little bit. Um, but, but beyond that, did you have, um, other people in mind or were these just pure figments of imagination or how, what did that look like?
0: Yeah, good question. Yeah, I you know I had so much fun developing these characters. I, I had you know because I was in the world of the push for so long, which is very like a very tight perspective from one woman, you know, and she is speaking quite directly to one person in this book, and so every the, the whole thing felt very tight. Um, and I just was really excited to play with the idea of four totally different characters and be able to build out you know these these women, although of course you know, when you're writing a book from multiple perspectives, from four different perspectives, the challenge is how do you build characters with depth in like a quarter of the space (laughs) that you normally have, you know? And so that, that is the challenge, but yeah, I, I loved in the push, there is a relationship between Blythe and Gemma, and it is a very unusual, peculiar, friendship if we can call it a friendship that's sort of based on lies but it is a friendship um and I I love writing that friendship even though it was such a strange one and I knew I wanted to write more about female friendship especially between mothers I just think that's so there's such a dynamic there and it's such an interesting kind of relationship to have because so often we become as mothers, we become friends with other mothers because of our children, you know, because of that connection, but we wouldn't necessarily be friends if the kids weren't in the picture, you know, so your, your friend group sort of expands in interesting ways. Um, so I love the idea of Whitney and Blair sort of being a foil to each other, you know, they were quite different and they sort of play off each other. Um, so, so that was really fun to write. And I, I really wanted to write well, actually I should say when I, when I did interviews for the push and like book clubs for the push quite often questions would come up or discussions would come up around, well, what's a, what makes a bad mother and what makes a good mother. And I'm, I'm always, yeah. And I'm always so uncomfortable with that conversation, to be honest, because as a mom, you sort of think, well, some days I do feel like a bad mom, you know, and some days I do feel like a good mom. And is there such a thing as one or the other? I mean, it's just not, we don't, as mothers, we don't live in those binaries. We, we are certainly somewhere in between all the time. Um, and so I, so I wanted to kind of think, okay, well, what would this, who would we see as this quote unquote bad mother, which turned into this character of Whitney who, you know, I think, I feel like I'm going to end up defending Whitney in all the, all of my conversations about the book because <laughs> she's very easy to criticize. She's very easy to judge, but I think there's a lot that's really relatable about her. Um, and I think there are redeeming qualities about her. And then on the flip side of that, you know, I I think that so many women can relate to the kind of character that Blair is, where she is sort of this martyr mother, you know, she has sacrificed a lot. She's given up a lot. Um, She has this sense of longing and emptiness now, but she's so, and that that feeling very much frightens her because what does that mean? Like, what what is she going to do about it? And how do you change your life when you're at the point she is where everything's sort of set and you can't really just throw a bomb on everything because you're feeling empty, you know? So, so she's in it, she's in a tricky spot. Um, and then the character of Rebecca, um, you know, I, I was just talking about this with someone this morning, actually, that I, I'm always, she, she, as I have mentioned before, she's a doctor, she's a doctor in a children's hospital in the emergency room. And I'm very interested in doctors like in physicians. I, I just think it's maybe it's because I'm so far from being, scientifically minded. Like I I just, it's such a foreign thing to me. Um, I'm sure we're, we're probably all in the same camp there. Um, but it, it feels just like such an interesting profession where you're faced with a totally different way of thinking every day and like both on the ethical side and on the practical side. And, um, my husband, my, my son, has a chronic illness. And so we spend a lot of time in the children's hospital. Um, And so I've had, you know, over eight years, I've sort of been exposed to various doctors and that whole medical setting. And it's always just kind of fascinated me. And I just thought what an interesting position it would be to be, you know, going to work every day and effectively, you know, saving the lives of children all day or helping children to be healthy and okay all day. Um, And then not being able to, have your own child, not being able to bring your own child, you know, into the world in in a safe way um, because she has experienced these recurring pregnancy losses Um, and just how hard that would be. And it was a bit cruel, I guess, to put her in that terrible situation, but, um, but there is sort of this real contradiction to what she wants so badly and what she has to do every day. Um, That, that really interested me about her.
1: Eating better is something we want to be convenient and easy. With Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals, every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. I'm looking forward to over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. What are you waiting for? Let's get started today and get after our goals. Fuel up fast with Factors' restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prep, no mess. With Factor, there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Sign up and save. They've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Join us and head to factormeals.com fiction50 and use code FICTION50 to get 50% off. That's code FICTION50 at factormeals.com fiction50 to get 50% off. Listen, we get it. You're busy. You got work to do, kids to take care of, got to get to the gym at some point.
2: And make sure you're drinking enough water and figuring out what's for dinner is a whole nother project.
1: Yeah, point is, you're busy. You don't have time for 10 minutes of commercials or scripted dating segments on your morning commute.
2: That's why we created The Morning Show Podcast. I'm Carla Marie.
1: My name is Anthony, and The Morning Show Podcast is a daily podcast aimed at keeping you informed, and entertained in under 25 minutes.
2: We kick off every show with The Core Four. It's the four biggest news stories that you should probably be aware of. And then we continue on with music games, pop culture
1: news. And of course, what's trending, the thing you didn't know you needed until Carla Marie told you about it. Yeah, it's my favorite. You can get The Morning Show podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your shows.
2: Well, those are the interesting things too. Those gray areas where... There's no really good answer, right? And I think that's what is interesting mm-hmm. to stories, writers is it's not black and white. It's not this is what she should do or this is how she should feel or you know, putting them in these situations and seeing what they do. It's it's really fascinating.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: Well, I want to go back to the beginning of the book. The opening scene is mm. really pretty fascinating, and we learn lots in in that opening um, chapters. Um, why, why did you tell tell us about setting that stage, and also why you decided to make that kind of the touchstone of the book? Because we keep going mm. back to it through the book, and it's really fascinating.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I loved writing those backyard party scenes, and <laughs> so it's it sort of we open with. Um, you know, a scene in a backyard, it's in, uh, Whitney's backyard. Um, her and Jacob have, are the ones with this sort of bigger, impressive home. And they host an annual kind of backyard gathering, um, at the end of the summer where everybody in the neighborhood comes and it's sort of, you know, drinks and the kids are there and it's all quite, um, supposed to be all quite friendly. Um, and I, I loved the idea of showing like I, the other thing that I sort of do in those scenes, which happen kind of periodically throughout the book, all scenes from this one night is, is hot from head to head, um, from character to character, which I think is something that they tell you not ever to do in writing school, which maybe you just really shouldn't do. I don't know. Um, because it, it, it you know, the, the risk is that it, it's a risky thing, but I, but I loved the idea of kind of, getting a quick glimpse of exactly what was happening from, from all different, from all of these different people from the four different characters in the book. Um, Because I think that's a way like a really interesting way to show how people think they are projecting themselves and how they are actually perceived. Um, And I think that's what I was trying to kind of achieve in those chapters, you know, like what is going through one person's mind about the way they're presenting themselves to the party versus, you know, how are they being judged by everyone else for doing that exact thing Um, and so it was just a really fun, like few scenes to write. And, and there's, you know, some, some important thing, it kind of builds up to a few important things that happen in the plot along the way, um, playing with kind of timeline. Um, but in that opening scene, we also get this, this one big event that kind of, you know, turns everything on its head for the rest of the book. Um, which, and I don't think it's a spoiler because I think it's in the back copy of the book. It's, yeah, it's say, right on the cover,
1: so. <laughs> yeah,
0: to say that Whitney really loses it. She really loses it on her son. And she just, she's her she can't find, her son is this source of real irritation and tension for her. And she's trying to put on this very perfect party and wanting everyone to have this like very, you know, picturesque time that's going to end up on Instagram and she's, you know, moving around the party and sort of doing her thing and she can't find her son and she's wondering where he is and why he's not acting nice and polite like the other kids in the neighborhood are. So she sort of searches the house for him and she finally finds him upstairs and he's eating all the party favors that are meant for the, for the kids to take home. And she just gets absolutely furious at him and screams at him. um, And then suddenly realizes that the door to his bedroom window is wide open and everybody at the party down below has heard. Um, And it is just one of those moments that, you know, she hears the deadening of the party below her and knows that everyone, you know, has just heard what she's done. And I think that, I think most, I think not, not to that level, but I think most parents can relate to that feeling of having, you know, yelled at your kid or screamed something or been angry in a moment and then thought, Oh, who saw that? Or, Oh, who heard that? You know, because it's such an impulsive thing. Um, and so this was, this is definitely like, a you know, a, a, the next level of, of that, but she, you know, she instantly in that moment knows what has gone wrong and what she will have to pay the price for after that. Um, and so that kind of, you know, kicks things, kicks things off in a, in a downward spiral for her.
2: <laughs> this is on such a small scale. But when I read that, I remembered my son was two and we were in target one day like bad, but you know, he was two and he was being two, and like I was annoyed. I wasn't like screaming at him or like, her, you know, there was nothing like horrible, but like neither of us were on our best behavior. And I remember getting home and I had an Instagram like DM from a woman that was like, I saw you in Target today and I really wanted to oh, say hello no. and maybe get one of your <laughs> but, I, but I didn't want to come up to you, and I thought, Please, God, don't let it have been in a moment. That's so funny. You were sitting down in this cart right now. Yeah. You were not playing your dollar <laughs> spot toy or whatever yeah, it was. You know, exactly.
0: Like, oh, well, that's so funny. It, wasn't it, even, it was even like, terrifying. Oh. It probably was exactly the moment she saw. <laughs>
1: And she or, filmed it. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly, exactly. Why would it be the 90% of the time that you're being a nice mother? You know?
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly, exactly
2: that. Exactly. that. Me to, at its core, the whispers is an exploration of motherhood and it's many, many facets. And you do write about some really tough topics. So can you talk about how you created these complicated, complicated relationships that really balance between anger and desire?
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess I'm always sort of interested in writing about, um, the parts of motherhood or the parts of womanhood in general that feel the scariest, you know, feel the, feel the most uncomfortable, I should say. Like I, I really, um, I feel like someone said to me the other day that reading my books, um, felt like, like when she's reading them in public, she was reading them in public and she, she felt like. She almost was naked while she was reading them. Like it gave her that sensation of, you know, reading about these experiences of women and, and just feeling very bare or exposed. And I, I think there's something to that. Like, what why do we feel that way when we read about these um darker, harder parts of being a mother or being a woman? And you've touched on some of them there. And I, I think I I wanted to anger and rage, I think is a really hard topic for mothers. And I think that. We all experience it. We've all had moments of it. We all know what exactly what that feels like when like the heat creeps up and the anger gets to a certain point and you just want to lose it. Um, and I think the I think we felt like that before, but then I think the pandemic really, really made that um, a really hard issue for a lot of parents and a lot of mothers who were just really struggling during those few years. Um, and I just thought like, i w- I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about. Um, how that feels, like how hard it is to control. Of course, Whitney is a character who has a very, very, very hard time controlling that, um, as we see it several times throughout this book. Um, but I think that's something that carries a lot of shame for women. Like it, it's very shameful to feel that angry and very shameful to feel that kind of rage. And yet we all do. Um, and I think we all try to hide it in a certain sense. And it, it is so embarrassing and exposing to like have, be in Target and have somebody see you like be angry at your kid. Like that that's oh, really yeah. hard, right? <laughs> Yeah. Or like, I've had experiences where I've like really yelled at my son and then turned around and I'm like, Oh, my friend is right there. Like behind, you know, in close proximity. And you just feel, ugh, you just feel so like bad about it. Um, so she I to also yelled that. at her son like that, but she's judging you too. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly That's right. <laughs> it. We all know it makes us all so uncomfortable and we all kind of go, Ooh, right. Like it's yeah. just this, it's just this real innate kind of thing. Um, so that was, that was important to me to kind of, to write about in this book. And then the other thing that I sort of, you know, had some debate around like how much do I include or how much do I want to write about it. Is, um, you know, Rebecca has a history of reoccurring pregnancy loss, as I've mentioned, Um, and. I, I really, that to me is one of those things that, um, well, like I, I when I was you know having kids, when you're having kids, I had my own miscarriages or pregnancy losses. And I remember thinking like, wow, it's so surprising to me how foreign this experience feels like how, how I really don't know anything about that. I don't hadn't read or heard or watched like what that really feels like or what I should do, like what you're supposed to do. Like, there's so many things about that, um, that we don't talk about because it is uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable thing for other people. Um, and so there's very much this sort of, um, culture of like, well, just don't, don't talk about it. It happened in the past and move on. And of course we see that like Rebecca can't move on from that. It's all she thinks about. It is entirely consuming, um, because it is really a consuming thing, you know, when you're going through it. Um, and I was just thinking about how, like, I had never really seen that in detail on the screen or on the page. Um, and so I did include like, you know, quite a bit of detail around that in the book. Um, and I, yeah, I, I thought that was important in terms of just giving some language to that, uh, to how that feels and how that looks. Um, so yeah, there, there are some things in here and certainly there, there were some things in the push that it's sort of that darker territory that we don't always want to go to, but that I think is important, um, in terms of opening up conversation. Yeah,
1: I agree with that. I um have to say, obviously, I've never mm. been a mom, but um, but it, one of the great things about reading is that we get to to, to see these perspectives and we get to learn and kind mm. of could feel what it's like for somebody else. And I think it just expands our empathy and 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 things. So like, it, it, yeah, you're right. It was a little it was a little tough to read, but boy, I'm cl- mm. so glad I did because it really oh, um, opened my eyes to what people go through.
0: Well, thanks, Ron. Thank you.
1: Yeah. But also as a reader, one of the things, let's switch to structure a little bit of the Mm. book. I was amazed at how you uh, made each chapter like a puzzle piece and each and you'd you'd leave Mm. it off. And I want to go right back to it, but then I couldn't wait to read what I what was in front of me. So you created this like real slow burn that just Mm. builds tension chapter after chapter after chapter. And so you think it's this nice little um, neighborhood. And as we go on, you know, you can you get deeper into the characters and things. How did you plan that out so successfully.
0: Mm, Thank you. Um, you know, I think at the beginning it was a mess. (laughs) I think the first first draft (laughs) is quite messy. Um, and I, I, I really wanted the first take of it to just be a little more organic. Like, let's see where this goes. Let's see like leaving room, for surprise, leaving room to kind of discover a little more. So I I really didn't plan too much out at the beginning. Um, but then quickly realized that I like this, the structure was going to be so important for this book to work because they're, you know, it's, it's like, they're all threads kind of mixed up together and uh, they all, it all sort of needed to make sense. And the reveals needed to happen in a very, very specific way in order to have impact. Um, so yeah, I think it took a lot of revision, like a lot, like I did two or three, two big, big, big revisions on the book where I felt like I was digging up the foundation again and kind of putting it back together. Um, and then, you know, several, many revisions after that to kind of work on character and things. But um, yeah, I think one thing that really helped, I think in doing those multiple perspectives was to some of my revisions or some of my some of the editing I did was I would only edit Rebecca from start to finish. And then I would only edit, edit Whitney and kind of go through each character and then only do the backyard scenes. um, So that nothing was missing and that they each worked really strong on their own. And then, and then I, I did have one, I remember one weekend of like old fashioned copy and paint, like cutting, (laughs) like printing it out, getting a pair of scissors, cutting out the scenes, cutting out the chapters and, you know, doing a big kind of, like shuffle of putting the puzzle together. And I did a lot of um, like reworking the order of scenes until it really made sense. And that, that did take a long time. It did take a long time with this book because of that. Yeah.
2: That's, that's really interesting to hear. I actually do that too, like go through each point of view and edit each point of view individually. And it's only Mm. because my very first book came out, someone told me that they read one character's point of view and then the other, which I thought was so odd, but also from interesting. I need to really make sure that everyone's story can stand on their own in case someone decides to read it like that. (laughs) Interesting. never heard that. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. And I I was Mm -hmm. like, that's not how you're supposed to read it. Do it again. (laughs) (laughs) But Ashley, let's talk a little bit about you and your career because, you know, you were in publicity, you were sort of on the other, the other end of this whole gig. So tell us a little bit about, um, that journey. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, so I worked, I had spent most of my career working in public relations. I worked at an agency and worked on different consumer brands um, and really loved that, loved that job. But I did sort of feel like this passion piece was missing from that. Um, and I had a dear friend who I'd worked with at public relations agencies who had gone to work at Penguin Canada um, and there was a role that opened up on her team um, to lead the publicity department. And so I, I went to work for her and there, and I just loved it. Like I, I so I was doing the same thing day to day. I was still doing public relations, but I was like a kid in a candy store, you know, going into a publishing office yeah. <laughs> every day because i I just loved like I loved nothing more than reading and books and writing. Um, And I was doing, you know, writing classes at night and that sort of thing, but hadn't hadn't pursued anything. Um, And I loved that job so much. I really did. It was so, it it was challenging at the beginning because it is such a different world, like publishing is its own strange beast of an industry, um, as you guys know. And so there was a lot to kind of learn, but I loved the variety of reading. I loved like thinking about books in a totally different way. Um, I loved meeting and working with authors, um, and just that small insight into kind of how the editorial, you know, publishing process worked, which I'd never had any exposure to before. Um, so yeah, it was really an interesting time. And I worked on a lot of the like big U S books that were, we were distributing in Canada. So yeah, it, it was really cool. It was a really, really cool couple of years. Um, and then I had my son um, and as I mentioned, he was born with some health problems. And so wh- I sort of realized after that, that I just dealing with that and the care and the attention that that required, I knew I wasn't going to be able to go back to that same job again. Um, and so that's when I decided, okay, if I'm not going to go back to work and I, and I loved my work, like I, lo- I was so career focused. I loved just everything about office culture, just all of it. I had loved so much. So that was a big departure, but I thought if I'm not going to do that, then I'm going to do the thing I really have always wanted to do, but been kind of too scared to try, which was to write a book. So I started writing when he was about six months old. Yeah. That's great.
1: I love it. I'm going to ask one more question about the book Mm -hmm. itself. No spoilers, but was the ending always the ending, or did you develop that as you went through the book?
0: Ooh, Good question. You got me. You got me. Oh, good. Okay, good. I love to hear that. Um, No. So the ending was not always the ending. I actually had went through, I want to say four endings. I think this was maybe my fourth ending that I tried it ended differently, quite differently the first time. And then the second and third one sort of got me into this last ending, but it really was that feeling where one, and I will say like, I was never totally sold on the endings that I had. I, I knew the endings weren't quite there and my editors, that was something my editors came back to me with, like just pushing me to kind of rethink it, rethink it. And I'm so glad they did because as soon as I landed on this ending, I was like, this is it it completely works and it actually tweaked a few things throughout that I went back and changed but I was really happy with this ending and I felt a lot of pressure on the ending <laughs> because the ending of the push like people talked about the ending of the push a lot and asked about it a lot and I wanted to deliver an ending that felt like it you know stood up to that like you know worked with that and I feel like this one hopefully will for readers but I had the same thing with the push like the push that was not the original ending either that took me a while to get to as well so I think that might just always be my thing that the ending's probably gonna come last and I'll probably have to really (laughs) chip away but eventually we get there. (laughs) I actually
2: rewrite my ending like or I'll leave a big note for my editor. Like this isn't the ending, but I don't know it until we've like gone through the next round. Like I'm the same. Like I feel like sometimes you just can't totally tie it up. Like you're not ready.
0: (laughs) Yes, not ready. That's exactly, that is the perfect way to describe it. And it almost feels like yeah. I really relate to that. I feel like I need, I almost need the rest of the book to be working and done. And then I can be like, no, this is the right ending. Like it's almost like this finishing touch, you know, that doesn't come to you. you until
2: know Every little thread, like you have all the threads there. And sometimes in your first or second draft, the threads are there, but they're not all working the way they're supposed to be. And then once they're working, it's like, Oh, yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. You've described
0: it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Okay. So our listeners always want to know what to expect next from our guests. Can you share anything that you're working on? Maybe a sequel?
0: I am. I'm working on another book. That's all I can say, but I am writing. I'm in the thick of drafting right now. So that is sort of where I'm at now, but yes, I'm going to keep keep going. (laughs) That's okay. All right, Ashley. Well,
2: can you tell everyone where they can connect with you online and keep in touch about what might be coming
0: next or if you're on tour and all that good stuff? Yeah. So I'm mostly active on Instagram, which is at Ashley Audrain and also on Twitter at, at Audrain. And yeah, I'm, I think it's going to be a fun summer coming up for the book. So I'm going to be doing um, some events here in Toronto and here in Ontario. I'm going to the very first book festival in Columbus, Ohio in July, which I'm excited about. And then I'm going to be heading overseas to do the launch of the book in London. So that will be exciting. But I'll update everything as it's announced on my Instagram.
2: So you can follow me there. Ron is in Ohio and we just did the Friends and Fiction group. We just did the most amazing out of this world event in columbus
1: incredible so, yeah you're
0: gonna really? have a great night. oh right. oh, oh i'm gosh. so excited good oh i'm looking yeah, forward yeah. to it
1: yeah the cool. people in columbus at the library and that whole event is going to be just off the charts and you may oh, see I'm me there
0: excited oh good i hope i do i hope i do see you there that would
2: be great yeah well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. It has been amazing to learn more about you and your work and get a peek inside that brilliant mind of yours. So The
0: Whispers is sure to be a hit with readers everywhere and we wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you, Christian Ron. This is really fun. I really had a lot of fun chatting today. Thanks.
1: Same here, same here. And I will never look at any of my neighbors the same again after reading this <laughs> book. <laughs> it's not so caught up in the psychology of it and the drama and the tension. It's just incredible. So congratulations on the book. Thank you. And a huge thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode. If you want to purchase a copy of The Whispers and help an indie bookstore at the same time, visit our friendsandfictionbookshop.org page and grab a copy. We hope you'll join us for a brand new episode next week, and please be sure to tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode.
0: And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.